Well, praise the Lord. It is Sunday night, and we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 3. Amen. So we're going to just read through this first. Amen. And then we're going to start disseminating some deeper understanding about what Genesis 3 is all about. Amen. And we're probably not going to get through this in uh, one setting. We're probably not going to get through it in two settings, but I'm going to try to do it in two. Okay. So I'm going to try to have it done Wednesday night, but if not, it'll be three. Okay. But at least two, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, let's read Genesis chapter three, starting at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? Sorry, I threw King James in there. What is this that you have done? See, I see, I have this memorized in the King James mic. It's so bad that even when I'm reading the ESV, the King James just pops out of my mouth. That's how bad it is, okay? <laughs> Did you see that? It just, just flew out of my mouth. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and, she sh and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule, or but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And she, uh, excuse me, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us know, uh, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out and his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the garden from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us in our understanding, help us to rightly divide your word god we pray that you would help us not to walk in our own understanding god but to fall completely at your feet and to the mercy of your word help us to find truth and teach it to us we ask this in jesus name amen and amen now i before i start what i was going to talk about tonight in just reading this okay I want you to notice. Now, can you do me a favor, Mike? And I know I always put you on the spot. But read for me if you will. Let me see. Verse 1. Read verse 1 for me in the King James. I just want to get a King Jimmy reading of this, okay? Amen. That's all I need. Right there, the language from chapter 2 continues in chapter 3. Did you notice that in chapter 1, all it said was, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, until it got to man, and then it was the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. So it went from Elohim, 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 Elohim to Jehovah, or Elohim, or yeah, Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah Elohim. It's a double pronunciation of God all throughout chapter 2, and it continues all the way through chapter 3. We're not just seeing God just as the creator of all things or the almighty king, but we're also seeing him as who he is, Jehovah, amen? Jehovah Elohim, amen? We're, we're getting the Lord God, and it's putting man in perspective. 
of who God is. It's a generalization just to say God created man. Amen. Because when we're talking about the created order of things, we understand man's here and God's here. Amen. There's only one God, right? And then man needs to know him. Amen. Which is why when God's talking to man, it's not just God. It's Jehovah Elohim. Amen. That's what those words are right there. Amen. And if it's the Hebrew, you're going to see the Tetragrammaton right before Elohim. Amen. It's Jehovah or Yahweh Elohim. Because the word Jehovah is just a broken down pronunciation of the the tetragrammaton Yahweh okay Jehovah okay or in uh, actual Hebrew it would be Yahovah or Yahweh okay same word they're pronouncing amen we're just transliterating it through ancient Hebrew to the modern Hebrew understanding of the word Yahweh or Yehovah or Yahweh because that word Yahweh and Jehovah are the same word. Amen. We need to understand that. We need to break it down. We need to understand that this is the context this story is spoken in. And we understand that Moses is writing this to the children of Israel in in the desert, right? In the wilderness. Amen. This is when he comes down the mountain. This is what he's writing. This is all the stuff. Why would he be up there a month to write Ten Commandments? He didn't stay up there a month to write Ten Commandments, okay? He stayed up there that long to get all of this information disseminated to him from God. Amen. And he wrote this. He wrote everything in the, 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 the first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch, right? He wrote it all. We understand there's also, as human beings getting trans, you know, getting God's word delivered to us, there's a reason that this story, this uh, version of creation has been given to us so that we can understand it. And the words that are in it are important as well. Amen. Now, before I get to any of that, <laughs> which is all going to be part of probably night two or night three depending on how fast we get through night one amen <laughs> there's also a whole lot of stuff in here just on the surface what are we seeing here we're seeing what most everyone understands is the fall of man amen the the fall of humanity into sin amen the the birth of original sin right so in reading this, we have spelled out what is so aptly named or called the fall of man. And an understanding of the fall and of this chapter bring with it some fundamental and profound doctrine that rightly understood will shape your understanding not only of the nature of man, but of the condition of all mankind. Amen. Because a right understanding of this chapter will put phrases like I started with to rest. Men are basically good. I, you know, anytime you flip on, and I'm going to name him, okay, I'll say it, Joel Olstein. If you flip Joel Olstein on, what you'll hear every time is, they're basically good people. He's talking about people that aren't even in the church. 
not even saved, not even believing, not even following God, but they're, they're basically good. Well, there's a fundamental problem with that if your worldview says that everybody's good, they don't need God. The problem with good people is they don't think they need God. Amen? I.e., the rich young ruler came to Christ, said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? What did Jesus tell him? He said, well, you know the law. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. He said, well, I've kept those things since I was a youth. See, the problem is he was lying to himself. That's the real problem. Because although he may not have committed actual murder, Jesus said that if you hate your brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. Amen? Jesus said, if I look at a woman to lust after her, that I have committed adultery in my heart. Amen? Therefore, if we're going by this reasoning, there's no person on the planet who's never thought of stealing something. Right? Somebody, you thought about it one time or another. Amen? Whatever small, however small it is. Amen? Not one of us are guiltless. But that's a problem when you face doctrine of modern day Christianity that says people are basically good. People. Can you just turn on a TV? Flip on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Tweet, uh, Snapchat, whatever else kind of thing you can think of, and you'll find out really quickly that most people are really messed up. And they're not good. And they do a lot of things that aren't good. Amen? I think that the church is in the position that the church is in because we have not rightly identified sin, the extent of sin, and what sin has done to humanity outside of Christ. Amen? The reality is that even those in Christ are still bound to the consequences of sin. You say, well, no, we're saved and we're going to heaven. Yes, but your body's going to die, which was a curse applied to man upon the fall. And one of these days, the final enemy, death, will be defeated for every one of us. Amen? But it ain't right now. And the reality is that we're going to live the rest of our natural life in this body of death, like Paul called it. You got to realize when Paul said, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing that I would not want to do, that's the thing I do. He said that at the end, towards the end of his ministry. And he asked the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? When you understand that's what your flesh is, that's what your, this is what this dirt suit, this humanity that I've inherited from Adam, that's what it is. It's death. And it's been conditioned for death. It's depraved and sinful and has impulses and desires that do not want to follow God. Amen? That's the condition people are in. Amen? 
Not this euphoric, everybody's good, and just add a little bit of Jesus to it, and I'll be perfect. You know what I mean? No, that's not the condition of man. Before we begin to exegete these chapters, it's wise that we stop and talk about a few doctrines. Number one, or namely, the doctrine of sin, or original sin, the fall of man, the fall of man due to sin, and the extent of that sin. How far does sin go? Where and what in our heart and life does sin not affect? Amen? Only then can we really understand our need to be saved and the depths and the height and the length and the breadth of the love of God that while I was yet a sinner, he sent Christ to die for me. We'll truly be able to appreciate the gospel when we understand the condition of human nature as a result of what we read in chapter 3. Now, I wanted to read a couple articles, if that's okay. It's only, you know, half a page, okay? I want to read a couple articles. This one is titled Original Sin. Uh, it is the common, it is commonplace to hear the statement that people are basically good. Though it is admitted that no one is perfect, human wickedness is minimized in this statement. If people are basically good, then why is sin so universal? And that's a good question. If people are basically good, why is sin so universal? Why does it seem that everybody is trapped in sin? Why does it seem that everybody is affected by sin? Why is it? That question, just reading this article, makes me ask the same question over and over because people that claim everybody's good and basically all right and they're a good old boy, we got this good old boy syndrome. You know what I mean? That's why we don't talk to the, Vody Bauckham says this all the time, that's why we don't talk to the nice old lady down the street. Because she's just a nice old lady down the street. She's good. She's okay. I'm not going to take her to the gospel. Surely she's old enough. She heard the gospel. So I won't go down there and tell it to her. Because we've traded biblical truth, replaced it with the idea that people are basically good so I can have an exit plan on why I shouldn't talk to somebody about the gospel. Why I shouldn't share their need or show them their need for Christ. Amen? It is often suggested that everybody sins because society has such a negative influence upon us. The problem is seen with our environment and not with our own nature. This explanation for the universality of sin raises the question, how did society become corrupt in the first place? If people are born good or innocent, we would expect at least a percentage of them to remain good and sinless. 
we would be able to find societies then that are not corrupt, where the environment has not conditioned, uh, that the environment has not been conditioned by sinlessness rather than sinfulness. Yet the most dedicated to righteousness communities that we find, we still find provisions for dealing with sin. Since the fruit is universally corrupt, we look at the root of the problem in the tree. Jesus indicated that a good tree does not produce corrupt fruit. The Bible clearly teaches that, original, that our original parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. Subsequently, every human being has been born with a sinful and corrupt nature. If the Bible didn't explicitly teach this, we would have to deduce it rationally from the bare facts of the universality of sin itself. Because the idea that Jesus came down here to save people who are basically good it's not taught in the Bible. <laughs> Amen? Why did Jesus come to die? Mike, why did Jesus come to die? I'm going to put you on the spot. Salvation from sin. So, so Jesus came to save us from our sin, right? Isn't that what John, isn't that what the angel told Joseph? The angel that came to Joseph in a dream said, uh, Behold, uh, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the thing which will be born of her is of the Holy Spirit, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, right? Now, this reality that Jesus came to save us from sin, that reality itself teaches us that sin is a problem. It's such a big problem that God had to send his own son to be murdered in our place. Amen? This is not me. This is the Bible. Romans teaches us this, right? Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? So if sin is that big of a problem, it was, a, it was such a cosmic problem. That God himself was the only person that could deal with it. Yet we still want to conclude that people are basically good. When this is not taught in the Bible. They're basically good people. No. Think about all the times that God. Let, here I'm going to blow my own argument up. Can I do that? Is it alright? We can go back and backtrack to all this right? Turn with me to Genesis 6. I just want to show you something, okay? This is three chapters, and I don't know how many generations in between Adam and Noah, okay? If you're the Bible scholar that knows all that, then good for you, okay? <laughs> but we read in Genesis 6, 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive and they took them as their wives and they chose then 
any, they took them as wives, any as they chose. Then the Lord God said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were mighty men who were men of old, the men of renown, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now I want you to pay close attention to this line. This is verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of his thoughts, or every intentions of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's a big statement. Every thought of the human heart in the day of Noah was continually evil all the time. That's man. That's the human race right there without God, without help, without redemption from sin. That's us. Those of us in Christ, those who believe in Christ, have hope of eternal life because we're not dependent on our righteousness we're dependent on his righteousness because what we could not do through the flesh because our flesh is weak, Christ fulfilled for us. Amen? That's grace. But the realities of sin were so great because, and we can see this spelled out. And, and look, people go, well, you know, uh, Adam and Eve didn't do anything that bad, but you can see the effects of sin immediately after this. Because the next part of the story, their children, you can see the effects of sin in Cain killing Abel. You can see the condition has been passed down from Adam to Cain. Amen? The reality that even after the flood was not long after the flood and wickedness rose again when Noah was drinking his wine from his vineyard in the cave, right? And his son went in there and beheld his nakedness, right? Noah woke up and said, what is this thing that you have done? Cursed be Cain. Or uh, cursed be, uh, what's his name? Canaan, excuse me. Canaan, not Cain, Canaan. He didn't even curse his son who actually saw his nakedness. He cursed his son's son. Did you notice that in the Bible? Reason for that too. His youngest son saw his nakedness, but he didn't curse his youngest son. He cursed his Son's son. In other words, his, his, well, his lineage is what's being cursed there. You understand that, right? Well, that's what's being cursed when Eve is told what she's told. That's what's being cursed when the serpent's being told what he's told. 
I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Amen? It's the seeds of the woman and the seeds of the serpent or the devil are being, there's enmity against them. There's enmity put between them. Now they're at war and he's always trying to seek whom he may devour. You see that in the book of Job. What was the devil doing? He, he came back roaming to and fro throughout the earth, right? And he came in there, and God said, hey, what about my servant Job? Why did God do that? Job didn't ask for that. The devil didn't even ask to do it. God just brought it up like here. Right? A lot of theological questions in these stories in the Old Testament, okay? There's a lot of theological questions in this chapter. I'm not going to get to them all tonight, but there's a lot. So when we look at original sin, when we're looking at the, the meaning or the purpose or the depth or the, 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 the total extent of human sin, it's a big deal. I want to read a little more of this article. Yet the fall is not simply a question of, of rational deduction. It is a point of divine revelation. It refers to what we call original sin. Original sin does not refer primarily to the first or original sin committed by Adam and Eve. Original sin refers to the result of the first sin, the corruption of the human race. Original sin refers to the fallen condition in which we are born. That the fall occurred is clear in scripture. The fall was devastating. How it came to pass is open to debate even among reformed thinkers. The Westminster Confession explains the, uh, the event simply much in the manner that the scriptures do. It says our first parents being uh, seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Now, this statement that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith is very challenging for those of us who, who uh, don't want to submit to the understanding that God is sovereign. But to those of us who do, it's still challenging. <laughs> Amen? The reality here is the question always arises, well, if God knew Adam was going to sin, why did he let him? Right? Isn't that a rational question to ask? If God knew and God is sovereign and God's in control and God's all-knowing and all-powerful, why in the world would God let man do that? That makes no sense rationally. But Paul, like I said this morning, explains in the scripture, in the New Testament, he says that God let, he passed over certain sins for a time that he might display the glory of his grace towards us in Christ. The reality is God not only 
knew the fall was going to happen. God used the fall to teach humanity his grace, his glory in grace, his glory in forgiveness. Amen? Now, that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around because this still doesn't answer the question, why in the world would God do that? Amen? But if you've read this Bible for any length of time, I, how long have you read the Bible, Mike? Since you were like 10 or 12 or longer? Something like that? How many? How, now, I'm not going to point anybody out, but I know there's people in here that have read that longer. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a, at least one other person or two other persons that have read the Bible a lot longer than that and still have questions of why did he do it this way? Why did he do it that way? I don't understand this. I don't understand that. And the reality of this is we're probably never going to understand the total reasons for everything that God does and why. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but the reality is the New Testament only goes as far as I just told you. It says that God, to display His glorious grace, passed over sins formerly, right? And displayed his grace towards us in this generation through Christ Jesus. That was Paul's explanation to this question. Why did God do that? Well, here it is. <laughs> right? And it's not altogether satisfying. Because it still leaves questions. Amen? It's just like when we read, uh, what was it, Romans 8 or 9? When we read that. Where, where we talked about God having loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were ever born. That was Paul. And then he, they, he asks a rhetorical question like we all ask, well, well you know, well, if God... Uh, is forcing his will on them and how can how can uh, how can that be just right remember Paul's answer let's go look at that I want to I want I want to talk about that for a second just because it is a challenging part of scripture and it's just as challenging as answering the question of why did God allow Adam to sin that or that that's a fair question but it's also a very difficult question amen and it's not one that we have totally answered. And it's not one that we will get totally answered. Amen? <clears throat> Where is it? Is it eight or nine? Where is it? Or maybe I'm thinking of six. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That ain't, that's in Romans, ain't it? Romans 10, Romans 9, Romans 8, Romans 8. Let's go to Romans, not Hebrews, Romans. Yeah, Romans, Romans 9, yep, 
Right there it is. I got it marked out in this Bible too. <clears throat> Let's read this. Starting at Romans 9, 1. <clears throat> well, I don't know if I want to read that much of it to get to where I'm going. <laughs> That's a lot of reading, okay? Let's go to Romans 9, verse 10, okay? Not only so, but... Also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now watch this. He asks the question that we would ask if that was true, you know, in understanding this great truth. Amen. And we know that God is sovereign and God does call and God does work out his will. So we have to wrestle with this question just like they did. And he said, well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And then you will say to me, look, Paul is already anticipating their argument. That's what he's doing. He's anticipating their objection. He says, and you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, I want to stop right there because that is a fair question. If God hardens who he wants to and God... Uh, uh, has mercy on who he wants to, then how in the world does God still find fault with man? Because there's two great truths taught in the Bible. God is absolutely in control, yet man is absolutely culpable for his own sin, for his own action, for his own wrongdoing. That is absolutely both of those are true. And Paul's answer to it it's not a satisfying one. He says he hardens who he will and he has mercy on who he wills. And we as people are going, well, who's that? And, you know, how do I become one of those? Right? I mean, those are all logical questions that you would ask after that. Right? But the reality is, Paul keep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with this because Paul doesn't answer the question any farther than he already has. He will say, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer God back? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, 
even us whom he has called not from Jews not from the Jews only but from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it has said to where I where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seed, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law would lead, uh, with, that would lead to righteousness does not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying, uh, laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now here's the truth. Paul didn't answer their questions. Paul says God has the right to harden whom he hardens and have mercy on whom he has mercy. And then when they say, well, you'll say there's, you know, uh, how can God, how can we resist God's will? And, 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 and why is that just? And he said, who are you to ask God? Why you're doing this, why you're doing that. That's basically his answer. You, a lump of clay, have no right to look at the potter and go, I don't want to be a cup. I don't want to be a bowl. I don't want to be a plate. Right? That was his answer. He basically told them, you trust God that God's in control and he can do what he wants to do. That's not the answer that most people want. Most people want a definitive, this is why, this is why, and this is how. And we don't always have those, this is why, and this is why, and this is how. We get what we get. And understanding Jesus came to save us from sin, and that God passed over iniquity before time to save us, still doesn't answer the question of why God allowed Adam to sin. Amen? It doesn't answer the question. So we're still left with a few questions. We're still left wondering why. God doesn't, and, and here's the most beautiful answer that I can give you. God doesn't have to tell you why. I know that hurts, right? The reality is God is not accountable to come down here and tell Brian, hey, this is why I'm doing it. He's not answerable to Brian or to me or to you. He doesn't have to give an account to you of why he does what he does. God's in control. He's God. He's almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful. Not me. Amen? That was Paul's answer. And most people, if they ask the question of why did God allow Adam to sin, would not be satisfied with that answer. Can I get an amen on that? 
I'm sure everyone sitting in this room is still not satisfied with that answer completely. If you're honest with yourself, amen, come on. I'm going to read this a little more. Thus the fall occurred. The result, however, reached far beyond Adam and Eve. They not only touched—they uh, not only touched all mankind, but decimated all mankind. We are sinners in Adam. We cannot ask uh, when does the individual become a sinner. For the truth is that human beings come into existence in the state of sinfulness. They are seen by God as sinful because of their solidarity with Adam. This is true. Why do I know this is true? Psalm 51.5. Go to Psalm 51.5, Mike. I want you to read it for us, okay? This is King David. King David the man after God's own heart. Remember that? Mike has such a hard time finding it in that study Bible. The pages don't turn easy. No, I'm with you. No, fifth, uh, Psalm 51, 5. Psalm 51, verse 5. Read it real loud so everybody can hear you. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that ain't, that ain't what I wrote down. The reality that David's mother was not some harlot, we know, okay? David's mother wasn't some harlot. She was Jesse's wife. Amen? So what he's talking about here is not that his mother was somehow, you know, unfaithful and that's how he was conceived, which is some people's erroneous exegesis of that verse or explanation. They try to say, they try to say that, okay? If you've heard it, you're laughing because you have heard it, okay? But the reality is when he's saying I was formed in iniquity, shaped in that way, He's speaking the truth because in Adam we all fell. Romans 5 states this clearly, and we're going to try to get to that tonight. Because David is realizing very quickly, just like Solomon did, if you go read, if you haven't read uh, Ecclesiastes and really understood the depth of what Solomon was doing, this man tried to find meaning and pleasure and purpose in everything except God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And his deduction of the whole thing is vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Any pursuit in life outside of seeking to honor God is vanity. Amen? So in all of my pursuits, my goal should be to honor God. Amen? 
Now, I wanted to read just a little uh, portion out of uh, another book that I brought. We've already discussed original sin. I want to talk about the consequences and the condition of humanity after the fall. So we're going to read just, it's two and a half paragraphs, so bear with me, okay? God rightly judged a rebellion of Adam. God rightly judged the rebellion of Adam and Eve and brought a curse on them and all their offspring. The curse brought physical and spiritual death, separation from God, alienation from God, and from others. All people are now conceived, born, and live in this fallen, depraved condition. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you'll note that that's Romans 3, 10 through 12. And they're quoting the Old Testament. Paul there is quoting the Old Testament. Amen? All we like sheep have gone astray, having turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is Isaiah 53, correct? This is Isaiah 53, and we're talking about the suffering servant, understanding that it's Christ who all of our iniquity is laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, the stripes that heal us, they heal our spirit. They heal us from what? They heal us from sin. They bring us back into fellowship with God because we place our faith in Christ and his shed blood that forgives us of our sin. Now, how do I know that? Because the Bible says that Christ, uh, that, that uh, Jesus died so that his blood might forgive us of sin. This is New Testament understanding of Jesus' sacrifice, right? Now let's read a little more and then I'll go to Romans 5, okay? In inherited guilt and corruption leave every person completely unable to save themselves or to please God. There are at least six ways this pervasive inability affects everyone until God intervenes with his sovereign, gracious, saving power mankind is totally unable to do. <clears throat> Repent or trust in Christ to see or enter the kingdom of God. Obey God and thereby glorify him. Attain spiritual understanding. Live lives pleasing to God. Receive eternal and spiritual life. None of that can happen outside of God helping you. Period. End of story. Nobody will do those things because we are all lost outside of Christ and will not pursue God. Amen. Matter of fact, we all do exactly what Adam and Eve did in here. The minute that they sinned and they heard the Lord God walking in the garden, what did they do? They ran. And that's what humanity does. Remember John 1, light has come into the world, right? Men love darkness rather than light. John 3, 
19, right? The reality is that light has come into the world and men flee from the light until God shows up in their heart, in their life, and then all of a sudden, that man who was in darkness, the Bible says you who were once in darkness were translated or pulled or placed into his dear light. Amen? God has to bring that about. It will not happen on our own. We cannot attain it on our own. We cannot obtain it by ourselves. Amen? Why? Because of the fall. Because of God's common grace, that is his kindly providence, whereby sin uh, energies with, uh, energizes within us are partly restrained. Total, total depravity does not mean that every person apart from Christ is as bad as possible. See, when we talk about total depravity, that's what people first say. They're, well, not everybody's murderers. And not every okay, you're qualifying sin now, first of all. We're not saying that there isn't some people who are more evil than others. What we're saying is even the less and the, the least evil person in the world. Think of the least evil person in the world. Even that little bit of evil separates them from God. Why? Because the law demanded perfection. That's why Christ came. If righteousness can be attained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. That's what the scripture says. So the understanding that even the least, what did Jesus say? If you break even the least of one of these commandments, you're guilty of the whole law. Amen? So the understanding is any transgression or offense would have separated me from God outside of Christ. This last statement is very good, and I like it. It says, total depravity does not mean that every person apart from Christ is as bad as possible. It does mean, however, that none, of, uh, none by nature can fulfill man's primary purpose of glorifying God in relationship with him by their self, period. Amen? We need God to save us. That is truth. Amen? So go with me, if you will, to Romans 5, because this is going to be a lot of what we're talking about is spelled out right here. I got plenty of other verses that I could go to, but none where it is spelled out this directly. Romans 5, and we're going to start at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For, in, uh, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type 
of the one who was to come. Now, in this chapter is also the same portion of scripture that I was talking about earlier, and we're going to read it. But right here, he is talking about sin coming into existence by one man and death through sin. What is the wages of sin? The Bible says Romans 3.23, or Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death, right? In other words, sin brought death. Now, Adam and Eve didn't die physically, but spiritually they were separated from God. Physically now, they had to hide their self from God. They were clothed because their sinful nature understood their nakedness before God, which they did not possess before they ate that fruit. See, the devil was trying to tempt them with something that he could not fulfill and the promise would not be fulfilled that they, knowing good and evil, is a good thing. They think, oh man, I, you know, if I knew good from evil, then I would be able to control my own fate. But the problem is, that isn't what happens. When we dabble with sin, sin wins. Amen? The realities of the depravity of sin are being spelled out clearly. Now watch this. The, he says a statement here. He says, where there is no law, sin can't be accounted for or you can't be held against you, right? But he said, death reigned even from Adam until Moses. Even before the law, judgment was upon sin and upon sinful flesh. Even before the law existed. Amen? Because the reality is that sin still was affecting the human race. Amen? There wasn't no law to say this is bad, this is good. That, that doesn't matter. The problem was they had a commandment from God in the garden and they broke it. And the breaking of the commandment is not dependent on what the commandment is that you broke. It's against whom you broke the commandment. See, if you come in this church and I put some rules on the wall and, and, and you broke one of the rules, you're just going to be breaking the rules of this local church and we're limited in our scope and, and who we are. We're sinful, dreadful creatures. But if you sin against God, who is altogether holy, altogether righteous, altogether glorious, the sin is greater. I'm going to put it to you like this. If you went out there and scratched my, or my 2004 Honda Accord with your key, I'm only going to get so much value back on painting that car. But if I drove a Maserati, I'm going to get a lot more money back. And the penalty that you're going to face if I sued you for a Honda paint job is going to be a lot less than the penalty that if I sued you for scratching up my Maserati. The paint's going to cost more. The time's going to cost more. That's just how it is. So sinning against me is one thing, but sinning against God, who is altogether 
more valuable than we are, more glorious and wonderful. And there is nothing in all of creation, in all of from Genesis 1 to the time of Genesis 3, everything in creation had always did exactly what God said. And there's consequences to being the stray molecule that thinks it can do what it wants to do. That's what we're talking about. Because God is infinitely holy and righteous and cannot even look upon sin, Jose, or Habakkuk says, right? Cannot even look upon sin. And when man sinned, death, separation from God happened. How long am I going here? Closing? Okay. We'll finish reading this. <laughs> but, verse 15 of Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is speaking to the very thing we're reading. He's saying when Adam sinned, death was passed on to all men. This is clearly Paul's teaching. In his own words, that's not even me taking it out of context. That's what he's talking about. And he's using Adam as his example. So why am I reading Romans 5 when I'm teaching Genesis 3? Because of this. Because the understanding of original sin, where not just who made the first sin and, and, and what was the first sin, but what was the cause, what was the effects of the first sin? Because once we do this, once we walk down this road, we won't listen to another person that gets on TV and says, well, people are basically good. Click, turning you off. Not going to listen. Turn the radio. Turn the TV. Do people even listen to radios and step in their car anymore? Do we even listen to them in our car? I mean, that's, that's another question. Right, just the music, right. But the reality that sin is a problem 
is clearly spelled out all throughout Scripture. Amen? And God over and over is judging because of sin. Judges Israel concerning sin. Judges other nations concerning sin. Amen? The reality is that there were ramifications from our forefathers, or from our parents, our, our original parents, Adam and Eve, who are the father and mother of everyone living. Amen? There was a greatness to the fall. That's why they titled this section the fall of man because that term seems to be adequate to what happened when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Amen? So with all of this as a background, we'll start going through the verses <laughs> Wednesday. Amen? Stand with me if you will. We're going to close. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for grace, God, because we are all sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous, no, not one. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody that has come tonight or watched this live stream, God, that if they... If they had ever thought that, you know, people are just basically okay, God, I pray that you would show them what the scripture truly teaches is the condition of all human beings outside of Christ. We are desperately in need of a savior. God, this world, which is wicked and sinful, is in need of your son, in need of salvation, in need of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would give us a right understanding of who we are, of who you are, and what we are to do in response to your gospel, God. Help us to understand it. Help us to proclaim it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <laughs>